Welcome to Aggravating Circumstances, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Laura Saremi. This is episode 16, Our Fingerprints Junk Science. Last, never first, no worse since birth. Got my hopes set on heaven because it's hell here on earth. My life was a mess. Calls will be recorded and may be monitored. You may start the conversation now. Hey, hey. I was telling Destry, I, I said, when uh, it comes to wrongful convictions, I was like, uh, uh, Laura's pretty passionate. I said, and, uh, <laughs> she, she, ain't, she ain't scared. <laughs> On September 21st, 1997, In Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, 38-year-old Alvin Davis was found stabbed to death in his apartment. There were two bloody prints on a fan near the body. There was not enough blood present at the scene to account for the number of wounds or blood loss. A local hairdresser, Ricky Jackson, was Alvin Davis's on-again, off-again casual lover, He voluntarily spoke to police and said that he had been with Alvin Davis the day before, but had nothing to do with the killing. An Upper Darby police sergeant and a Delaware County police detective both identified the bloody prints as belonging to Ricky Jackson. Neither of these men were certified through the International Association for Identification in Fingerprint Analysis. One thing that we find in crime labs around the country is that many of our crime scene analysts are police. This is not CSI. This is not NCIS. These are not scientists. These are not people with forensic science degrees. These are often police officers. These two police officers were not certified in any way to be fingerprint analysts. Jackson's attorney, Michael Malloy, after Jackson insisted that the prints could not be his, hired two fingerprint examiners, Vernon McLeod, a 40-year veteran of fingerprint analysis who had worked for several federal agencies, and George Wynn, a former FBI examiner who had 35 years experience, 75 years experience between them, said this was definitely not his print. This was the first time that fingerprint evidence was going to be challenged in court by competing experts. Due to this, the prosecutor hired a third expert, a man named John Creighton, who was certified with the IAI to come in. He was an examiner from Vermont, and he agreed with the two police officers and said that it was Ricky Jackson's print. In spite of the fact that the FBI, the retired FBI examiner, and Vernon McLeod had significantly more experience and were certified in fingerprint analysis, the jury believed the local police officers and Ricky Jackson was convicted and given a life without parole sentence. Vernon McLeod and George Wynn were so upset that Ricky Jackson was convicted for something when they were certain that his fingerprints were not the ones at the scene that they sent the prints to the IAI and asked for a panel to review the prints and determine if they were Ricky Jackson's. The IAI panel said they were not his prints. The prosecutor found out about this and hired yet another expert to review the prints, and this one said, nope, they're not Ricky's. 
He then sent the prints to the FBI lab and asked for another evaluation, and the FBI lab agreed that they were not Ricky Jackson's prints. Delaware County DA Patrick Meehan said the prints were the keystone of the prosecution's case, and without them, there was no credible basis to accuse him, and his conviction was vacated after he spent over two years in prison. While investigating this, after his conviction, significant blood stains were found in another apartment in the complex that had been carpeted over due to the stain and the smell. There is a very reasonable chance that that was the apartment that he was murdered in, which would explain why there was a lack of blood on the scene, and that apartment had nothing to do with the accused Ricky Jackson. Ricky Jackson filed a civil suit against the three fingerprint analysts who wrongly identified his fingerprint. He lost the suit. And here is where it gets even more appalling. The two police officers who wrongly identified his print were not reprimanded. They were not retrained. They were not stopped from continuing to do fingerprint analysis. And after everything was done and said, they were adamant that they were still right and that the FBI lab was wrong, the IAI lab was wrong, and all the other experts who disagreed were wrong. It is downright pathological that people in the criminal justice system will not admit when something is wrong or they've convicted someone who is innocent. And it speaks to the extensive problems with the system that these people are not only not stopped, they're not reprimanded or held accountable in any way, and they're allowed to continue doing what they did that put the wrong person behind bars. So let's talk about fingerprints and the science of fingerprints or possibly the lack of science of fingerprints. You've heard this before. No two people have identical prints. They say that in courtrooms all across the country. They have for over 100 years. Do you know there's literally no evidence that that's true? No one has looked into it. It's never been studied. There are no comparisons of how often people have similar prints We really have no idea if that's even a valid premise. In a 1919 case, the fingerprint examiner said, quote, the fingerprint expert has only facts to consider. He reports simply what he finds. The lines of identification are either there or they are absent. Here's the problem with this. Fingerprint experts have never even agreed on a way of measuring their accuracy. They talk about points of similarity. So they'll look at a print and they'll compare it to another print and they'll talk about areas that are similar. And they've never agreed on how many points of similarity you need to even call it a match. Do you need six? Do you need 10? Do you need 20? Like how how many do you need to say it's the same person? And this is where there's literally no science involved and there's no rules or regulations And analysts can basically make it up as they go. And some jurisdictions will have guidelines that others don't. And when you're working with a crime scene, a latent print, which means it's invisible to the eye and you have to use products to look at it, you're often talking about roughly a third of a fingertip. 
So you're not talking about a full set of 10 prints where they've rolled your finger across the the, the print sheet and, and made this beautiful image. It's usually smudged, it's partial, and it's a tiny piece. And we literally have no data on how often those little tiny pieces of prints actually match to real people. We do know that there have been at least, and these are known cases, at least 23 known wrongful convictions due to incorrect fingerprint evidence. Some of these, somebody made a mistake, and some of these, they flat out lied and made it up. That's going to come up later. There have been a handful of studies on fingerprint analysis. There's a company called Collaborative Testing Services, and since 1995, they send out a voluntary test to fingerprint analysts to see if they can match a set of prints. This is a comparison where they give two sets, and they're usually complete sets. So these aren't partial smudged latent prints from a crime scene. These are complete sets. And the results have been up to a 20% error rate. 20%. One in five is wrong. When we talk about the thousands, tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of prints and print comparisons used every year in the United States, with a 20% error rate, how often are we telling people their prints are at crime scenes when they're not? I'm going to read a paragraph from an article called Faulty Fingerprints, story by Trina Arpin. It's at uh, bu.edu. Equally troubling is a test conducted by the FBI. During Byron Mitchell's trial for armed robbery in 1999, his lawyers questioned the reliability of fingerprint identifications. In response, the FBI sent two prints taken from the getaway car and Mitchell's prints to 53 crime labs to confirm the agency's identification. Of the 39 labs that sent back their results... 23% concluded that Mitchell's prints did not match those from the car. The judge nevertheless rejected the defense's challenge and accepted the fingerprint evidence. Mitchell was convicted and remains in prison. The FBI has not repeated the experiment. This is appalling. Everyone thinks fingerprints are infallible. No two people have the same fingerprints. There's very little science behind it. And what we're finding as I look into these cases is that what plays a role is human error and bias as much as just failing to have a good enough sampling or idea of the error rate. If you have a tiny partial print and you have a few you know, points that you can match, we have no idea at what probability that print might match to someone else. For example, let's look at the case of Brandon Mayfield. Brandon Mayfield is an attorney in Oregon, and he was also a Muslim and was very outspoken in 2005 about rights for Muslims. Remember, this is right after 9-11, and Islamic hate crimes in the United States had started skyrocketing. There was a bombing in Madrid, and Brandon Mayfield was arrested because they said that his fingerprints matched fingerprints found at the bombing in Madrid that killed 191 people and wounded scores of others. They weren't his prints. He wasn't the bomber. The bomber was an Algerian national named Duod. But Brandon Mayfield spent a couple of weeks sitting in prison while they're claiming that they're his prints. Was this bias? 
Let's go back to the case of Ricky Jackson that I started with. The police officers were adamant they were his prince. Ricky was a gay lover of the murdered person. Was he targeted because he was gay? Here's another finding in several of these cases. Very often, the supervisor in the crime lab, who is typically a police officer, is the first person to match the prince, and then they ask that they are verified by a subordinate. If my boss tells me that they're sure this is right and they want me to verify or corroborate it, how much pressure am I under to say, of course, boss, you're right? How many people, especially when you start talking about the dynamics that happen in police training and the hierarchy in police stations, are going to say, no, boss, you're wrong. This is not the right print, especially when they think they've got their person. So that is a huge error factor. And this goes back to my episode way back when, earlier in the podcast, where I said crime labs should not be associated with police departments. When everyone in the crime lab works for the same people, they are motivated and pressured to find evidence that helps the prosecution. They are also motivated to find or ignore or even destroy evidence that doesn't help the prosecution. If you'd like to learn more about fingerprints and the problems with fingerprints as evidence, there's a very interesting paper that was published called More Than Zero, Accounting for Error in Latent Fingerprint by Simon Cole, reviews more than 20 cases where wrong fingerprint identifications happened, occurred in convictions. He also goes through the fact that essentially all of them, the mistakes or corruption was found by accident. None of them did somebody double check it and say, oh, wow, we got this wrong. Several were convicted and they won new trials due to other causes that were unrelated to the prince. And when reviewing the trials, the problems and the fact that the prince didn't actually match was discovered at that time. And so he goes into pretty good detail about how many of these cases are probably out there. These are just the ones that he found. So fingerprints are not infallible. This is this is a big thing. And so this brings us back to the case of Carrie Max Cook. I mentioned him in our last episode. Carrie was accused of the 1977 murder of Linda Joe Edwards in Tyler, Texas. He was wrongfully convicted and sent to death row where he spent 22 years in prison. He has one of the worst wrongful conviction cases in the history of the United States. It's a 43-year story of horrid systemic police and prosecutorial misconduct. For this episode, I want to talk about the fingerprint. Part of the reason that Carrie was targeted was that they found his fingerprints on the patio door for Linda Joe Edwards. He had multiple witnesses that knew he had been to her apartment and a perfectly innocent reason why he had been there. This was easily explained. But here is what the police did to Carrie Max Cook. If you haven't read his book, Chasing Justice, you should get it. Definitely read it. I'm going to read a small section where he's discussing the pretrial for his court case, and this is concerning the fingerprint. In this section, Smith County's District Attorney A.D. Clark III was calling witnesses. Quote, The state calls Sergeant Doug Collard, Clark announced, as he turned to search for his witness in the back of the courtroom. A tall, lanky Caucasian man with a mustache came forward and climbed into the witness box. 
He was sworn in and gave his name and rank with the Tyler City Police Department. Sergeant Collar, did you have on occasion to go to the crime scene at the Embarcadero apartment complex on the early morning hours of June 10, 1977, for the purposes of dusting the premises for latent fingerprints? Yes, sir, I did. I processed the crime scene. What, if anything, did you find in terms of fingerprints? I dusted the patio door leading into the apartment. I managed to lift 13 fingerprints from the apartment, three off the sliding patio door frame. Can you tell us who those fingerprints off the patio door frame belong to? I'm going to interrupt here. Who did the other 13 fingerprints belong to? Okay, sorry. Back to the story. Can you tell us who those fingerprints off the patio door frame belong to? They belong to the defendant, Carrie Max Cook. He's seated between the two attorneys at that table right here, he said as he pointed his finger directly at me. Clark looked first at the judge and then turned as if searching for someone in the audience. Sergeant, were you able to determine, based on your experience and your expertise, how long those fingerprints have been present on her doorframe? Yes, sir, Collard said without any hesitancy. I would estimate they were approximately between 6 and 12 hours old. Pass the witness, Your Honor, Clark said. Full stop. You cannot date a fingerprint. You can't. It's impossible. It's scientifically impossible. It's it, even if you have magical powers or ESP or I don't know, communicate with aliens, you cannot date a fingerprint. This guy got up there and committed serious perjury. Perjury is lying under oath and just made this shit up. This is a tiny piece of the misconduct they conducted to frame Carrie Max Cook. And I have a huge announcement. For our next episode, you will get to hear directly from Carrie Max Cook himself. After I released this episode the first time, a fantastic listener named Jill Urgenbright sent me a link to a very interesting proof of concept study. When you're trying to come up with whether something might be relevant or practical or useful, a lot of times they'll do a proof of concept study, which is a research project to see if an idea might have merit. What Jill sent me was an article about a proof of concept study done at Iowa State University. This was published in January of 2020. This is the year this podcast is being recorded. While Carrie Max Cook's case was in 1977 and fingerprint dating in 2020 is still not a thing, it could potentially become a thing. So I wanted to talk briefly about this study. So what they did was they took three individuals in a controlled laboratory setting. They evaluated their fingerprints and they looked at whether they could age their fingerprints. And what they found was that the oils on their fingerprints degrade over time, and that could be tracked. And so they were able to see the difference over a seven-day period on whether the print was made on day one or day seven. The temperature was exactly the same, and the humidity didn't vary a lot. Again, this was just a proof-of-concept study in a controlled laboratory setting with only three individuals, but it was promising, and they were able to show that the, the fats that you produce on your skin that would leave a fingerprint gets changed over time, and they can actually test that. Now, to make that into something that law enforcement could actually use would require 
much, much, much more study. They are continuing the study, so this could one day become a thing where you can actually age a fingerprint. Of course, this does go back to do the fingerprints really match people? And again, we still have no data on that. I spoke to a criminal defense attorney today as I'm recording this addition to this episode, and she has agreed to come on and discuss some of the things that come into play in courts and cases about fingerprints. And the first thing she said before she even knew that I had done this episode was fingerprints are junk science. So I'm very excited to hear from her and we'll be adding her part to this episode once we get it recorded. Meanwhile, in 1977, dating a fingerprint was definitely not a thing. In 2020, it's still not a thing, but one day it might be. Once again, thank you to Jill Urgenbright for sharing that very interesting article with me. This is an ongoing story, and I am happy to add things as we go. If you have anything you would like to share, please reach out directly at circpod at gmail.com. That's C-I-R-C-P-O-D at gmail.com. Thanks for coming along on this ride. Everyone fasten your seatbelts. Don't forget those kids in the back seat. Stay safe and definitely tune in for our next episode where we're going to talk to Carrie Max Cook. 